audio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ with Minister Chris Palmer. Bernie Church of Christ meets for worship each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. You can find Bernie Church of Christ at 1 Upper Balconies Road, right next to Starbucks. Now, with today's message, here's Minister Chris Palmer. Throughout my years in ministry, I have taught classes on all sorts of subjects. I love teaching. It's one of my favorite parts of being in full-time ministry. Well, years ago, I borrowed a class idea from a friend, and I taught it, uh, our, our, our youth group through this series uh, throughout one summer, and it was about music. Not worship music, uh, songs and, and hymns, but modern, everyday, hear it on the radio music. And I loved it. It was a great and super fun class. And here's how we did it. At the beginning of this series, I asked students to submit to me songs that they were familiar with, music that they liked, that they believed carried within it some Christian message or theme. Even though the band was not a Christian band or the song was not an overtly Christian song. And we would shape the lesson around the song that they had submitted. During the class, we would listen to it together. We would read through the lyrics, and then we would draw from it the spiritual message that was within the words. And the songs that we listened to were all over the board, all styles and genres. And of course, like I said, students would submit it, and I would filter through the songs first. And we'd have a conversation about... uh, if there was actually a deeper spiritual meaning and if it was, of course, appropriate for our class. And doing this class together with my teenagers hopefully accomplished a few things. First, it involved our students in the teaching process. They had a hand in preparing the lesson and they had a level of ownership over the class and the message that was being brought to their peers. Second, It was a style that spoke their language. It was their music and their tastes. Teaching the gospel of Jesus using some of their favorite songs somehow made it easier for them to learn and get into. And third, I hope it helped students tune the ears of their hearts to be discerning and critical of the music that they listen to. Not only enjoying the music, but listening to the words that they were consuming. What was the message that the artist was really sharing? And how how does it match with the message of God? It may match really, really well, or it may not match at all. Tuning the ears of our hearts is so important. Like Jesus talks about in John chapter 10, his sheep, his people, they know his voice and they can differentiate between his voice and that of a deceiver. We may notice words or ideas that are not his, even if they are cleverly disguised or attractively packaged. But then again, we just might hear the voice of our shepherd coming from an unlikely place whispering through the culture, revealing his presence and his power and his influence, even maybe where we least expect to hear it. Our God has infiltrated the world in ways that even the world itself may not detect. But believers who have ears that are sensitive can recall and recognize 
his voice when we hear it in the wild. And I call this class series, Your Own Poets. And it comes from a story in Acts chapter 17. You can turn your Bibles over there. We're going to spend most of our time this morning. Here in Acts chapter 17, we see the Apostle Paul, and he is traveling and teaching the story of Jesus. Now, his teaching of Jesus is not just about a story, but it also comes with a response. Paul isn't just aiming to inform people, but he knows firsthand the gospel's power to transform lives. He knows that he has, where he has come from as a bitter, angry, and violent man, and how Jesus Christ has made him more gracious, more loving, and more humble. And he wants that for others. Anyone else who will listen, that it might save their lives too. So here in Acts chapter 17, he finds himself in the city of Athens in Greece. And Athens is special. It's unique at this time and in this place. It is the epicenter of enlightenment, of the latest philosophy of art and prosperity and comfort. The Greeks at this time were cool. But the Greek way of life was something that uh, was a point of great controversy, especially amongst the Jews, like Paul. Some Jews felt that this Greek way of thinking and living was diluting the Israelite way. Morality, spirituality, relationships, marriage, government, all of this was being influenced by a pagan outside force. And maybe you feel like you can relate to that today. And so this group of devout Jews arose, and their goal was to ensure the purity of Israel. And they held fast to the Jewish law and the practices of Judaism, hopefully with the aim of returning to their righteous roots. And that group's name was the Pharisees. And Paul used to be a very ambitious, card-carrying member. And so now here, Paul finds himself no longer a Pharisee, but certainly still battling some of that former indoctrination. How will he handle being in the middle of this Greek culture that he was once so strongly opposed to? And so he starts in the Jewish synagogue and in the marketplace, speaking to anyone who happens to be there and will give him the time of day. And he has attracted the attention of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and some of them thought he was crazy. Some of them thought he was a heretic, but there were some, Acts 17, verse 19, who said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So there you go. He's got his foot in the door. Paul starts by acknowledging their faith. He realizes that everyone has faith in something. And Paul notes that he has seen evidence throughout the city of their religion, speaking of their idols, their temples, and their various gods. And he's noticed one shrine in particular that sticks out to him, one altar to a God who is unknown. Now, the Greeks did not want to fail to recognize a God that they didn't know existed. So to cover all their bases, they set up this altar, and hopefully it would suffice to appease this unknown God. 
And Paul uses that. And he says, verse 23, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He says, essentially, the God that you don't know, let me tell you about him, because I know him and he knows you. Go read all of Acts chapter 17 sometime this week. It's really some masterful work that Paul does. I love what he does here. He starts with where they are. He starts by speaking their language, uses something that they are familiar with as an illustration, as a launching pad of the story of Jesus. And Christ himself does this all the time, right? In his teaching, Jesus often taught using parables, these short stories with deep meaning. And he uses common everyday experiences and examples that anyone listening to him can understand. He uses things like sheep and farms and seeds and sons and fish and banquets and coins and the kindness of strangers. That's the same thing that Paul is doing here. He starts with what they know a piece of, and then he fills in the gaps of what they don't know. And he continues, verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. Okay, so what's he do? Next, he goes back to the story of the Garden of Eden, Eden creation of man, uh, one man from whom all others have come from. Why? so that people may seek God and find, uh, find him. He's noting something important about his God as compared to their gods. He's striking an important contrast. Remember, his audience has invited him in, not to tell them something that they already know, but to tell them something that they are unfamiliar with. Their God, or his God, Paul's God, is not one that lives in a temple or on top of Mount Olympus, but a God who is near, a God who is personal and relational. And that is so very different from the gods that they worship. He goes on, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are are indeed his offspring. And there's that phrase, your own poets. Here, Paul is using quotes from an outside source that his audience is familiar with that is not scripture. These two quotes come from Greek philosophy and poetry. The first one he quotes, he actually also quotes in Titus, in his letter to Titus. And the second is from a poem about creation and nature, giving credit to the Greek god Zeus. But instead, Paul is redirecting their understanding and giving credit to Yahweh, quoting from their own poets. 
You see, Paul has heard a whisper of truth coming from their own culture. They have misunderstood, but Paul recognizes that there is a seed of belief that is already present, something virtuous there, that even though it's small, he doesn't want to miss it. You're listening to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ. The Bernie Church of Christ is located at 1 Upper Balconies Road, right next to Starbucks. You can join the Bernie Church of Christ for online or in-person worship each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Now, with the rest of today's message, here's Minister Chris Palmer. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If there is any excellence... Now, this is an interesting phrase in this passage from Paul. It's different, very different from the others uh, that come before it. The first six phrases that we've been looking at the last several weeks are are more permissive. They're more open. They're, They're less critical. Whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, we are surrounded by whatever is true and just. So take it all in. Fill yourself with it. However, Today's phrase and next week's are more restrictive and selective. If there is any excellence, implying that there may not be. This is the only time in any of his writings that Paul uses this word. This word is translated as excellence, or perhaps many of your versions may say virtuous. Whatever is, or if there is any virtue. But specifically... Paul is talking into their context and their understanding of virtue. He's not talking in big, wide, general, open terms of virtue or excellence. Remember, his audience, the church in Philippi, is a major city in the country of Greece. In Greece, their virtue, their ethics, their morality, these are big themes for their philosophers some of whom, as we've seen, Paul quotes from. And I understand Paul to be saying here, just as he demonstrates in Athens in Acts chapter 17, be critical of modern philosophy, arts, and culture. The virtues of your context, what they consider to be excellent. Now, there may be something of value there, and if so, jump on it. If you hear the voice of the good shepherd coming out of it, then listen. But also make sure you have a good filter, because there's lots of false voices out there too. Now, this is not an unusual message throughout Scripture, that the voice of God may be coming from unlikely places. In uh, Psalm chapter 8, it contrasts the innocence and the weakness of children with God's voice of power and strength and might, which it says all the same may come from the mouth of babes. 
in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus visits with a Roman centurion and he notices that he has remarkable faith that is impressive even to Jesus. It says, uh, Matthew 8 verse uh, 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following him, truly I tell you with no one in Israel have I found such faith. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus says that even the rocks will cry out if his disciples are silent. In Numbers chapter 22, there's even a donkey speaking on behalf of the Lord. There's a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and a thin silence, a small whisper in 1 Kings 19. The voice of God, his virtue, his excellence is present in our world. Just like Paul says, he is actually not far from any one of us, but we have to have ears that are tuned to hear it. Now, it's no secret or surprise that the virtues of our modern world have made a whole lot of messes. The values of our culture emphasize and champion, promote and congratulate things that have damaged countless lives. And our beloved but very sick world often does not realize the damage that it's causing. And I don't just mean them out there, but me too. I can be just as guilty of this. Our world has some very dangerous virtues that do not match with Scripture. They don't match with the nature and the commands of God that are only there for our protection by His love. And yet... We, even disciples of Jesus, can have virtues uh, that come from a worldly motivation, a worldly motivation in mind, a goal of validation of what I'm looking for. And we can even approach Scripture looking for a verse or a phrase that validates my point, even if it is a misuse of the text. And in that case, we have sided with the virtues of the world and not the virtues and the excellence of God. You see, because it can't go both ways. We can, we may, find Christian virtues in the world, but we will not find worldly virtues in Christianity. What I mean is this, that sometimes the unbelieving world may accidentally or unknowingly be representing Christian virtues and values. I, th I think we see this all the time. When an unbelieving person or organization does the right thing, even when it's costly or risky, when they are kind or generous or protective or pure, not even knowing why they've gone out of their way to do such. However, we have to be careful of the opposite, where we take worldly virtues and inject it into Christianity. For example, Jesus is abundantly clear about the trappings and the dangers of things like pride and power and popularity. And yet, sometimes we can raise up Christian leaders um, who are examples, we think are examples of Christian virtues, all the while we admire them for the very things that Christ warned us about. This is also where common health and wealth or prosperity gospel comes from. That if you are faithful to God, then he's going to make you rich, famous, and good looking. Now, you can find that in the Bible, 
you can find a verse taken out of context and distorted that says just about anything you want. My question is, why would you want to? Is it because I want God's word to say what I want it to say so that I can keep doing whatever it is that I want to do? Is it because I want to be validated and not transformed by the word of God? So in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is quoting from their philosophers and their poets, he's not taking all of their ideas and beliefs and virtues and bringing them into the gospel. Instead, he has found a piece of the gospel in their virtues, and he's telling them, let's focus on this. Let's use this as a starting place. If there is any excellence, think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So we strive to live faithfully in this crazy world. And as we do so, we strive for the holiness of God while surrounded by distractions and deceptions. And we start with Scripture. Let us open our eyes and honestly bring the virtues of our world to the Word of God and ask, are these God's virtues first? Now, There are some easy ones out there if we're trying to be discerning. There's the easy ones that I already know that I'm going to throw out. Worldly virtues that that I know I don't, don't like, that I know don't match with the word of God. It's easy for me to look at the world's virtues and say, well, the world says that the loudest, meanest, biggest bully gets the most attention. I don't like that one. So that one's easy to throw out. But what about the ones that I do like? The ones that get me? the ones that make me feel puffed up or happy or attractive to the world, let's make sure that we test those also. Are those God's virtues? And they might be, but we have to be honest that they may not be as well. And I want to be sure. So, while we are trying to test the deceptive voices of our culture, the deceptive virtues, where do we start? What's next? Well, let me close with three points that hopefully guide us where we're going from here, or where we go from here. The first one is this, notice. Keep your eyes open and look out for examples of godly virtues in the world. Maybe you do hear it in music. Maybe you catch it in a particular song. Maybe you notice it in the way that your neighbor is acting. Maybe it's just some simple feel-good story that you see on the news. Maybe you read it in a book or catch some line out of a movie. But stay alert for that whisper of God that may be coming from an unlikely source. And write those things down. Put it somewhere where you won't forget it. I keep a list of these things on my phone. Uh, So I can pull it out real quick and jot it down and look back at it later. But train yourself. It takes some discipline. It takes some intentionality to train yourself to look for those little glimpses of God in the everyday world. He's there, and he's amazing, and you don't want to miss him. Because number two... It'll give you hope. Now, it's not a secret that the messiness of the world is discouraging and distracting and often disappointing and depressing. But at least for me, that depressing weight is most heavy when it's all that I'm focused on. When I am just staring at the mess all the time, it is easy for me to forget the good and the beauty that God has put around me, all that's lovely. However, when I am intentionally trying to notice the voice of God in the world around me, maybe even in the midst of the mess, maybe even coming out of a messy situation, 
it gives me hope. It reminds me that God is near, the God who saves, the God who redeems, and the God who delivers, the God who isn't asleep or distant, but who is working in and through all things to accomplish his will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, Romans 12, 2. Now, I may not always understand his will, but I don't have to, and that's a great relief to me. I have faith that God knows what he's doing, God knows where he's going, but I need those frequent reminders of hope because it's so easy to feel hopeless. And so when I've noticed and when I've found hope, then that gives me something to share. Someone else in your world needs to hear the reason for the hope that you have, 1 Peter 3.15. And we can, just like Paul does in Athens, use those things that we've noticed, those same things that the world has also noticed, but has not named. And we can give it a name and a source. And at the end of his sermon in Athens, there's a lot of folks who make fun of Paul. They mock him. But there are some who want to hear more. And there are some who believe and they find life in Christ. Thank you for listening to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ. You can join the Bernie Church of Christ here on Bernie Radio each Sunday at 11 a.m. or for worship online or in person each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. To learn more about the Bernie Church of Christ, please visit BernieChurchOfChrist.org or call 830-249-2685. That is 830-249-2685. Thank you once again for listening to the Bernie Church of Christ.